The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author Heather Lendy. Uh, we're going to be talking about her new book, Find the Good Unexpected Life Lessons from a Small Town Obituary Writer. So as the obituary writer in a beautiful but often dangerous spit of land in Alaska, Heather Lendy knows something about last words and lives well lived. Now she's distilled what she's learned about how to live a more exhilarating and meaningful life into three words, find the good. It's that simple and that hard. And as she says, we are all writing our own obituary every day by how we live. The best news is that there's still time for additions and revisions before it goes to press. Welcome to the show, Heather. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. I don't think I've ever had a a long chat with a social worker before. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm going to enjoy it. Well, you know, we have a lot in common because social workers do try to find the good with our clients or with our patients. I mean, that's part of what we do, right? So, uh, you know, I was thinking about, you know, your book, Find the Good, You're an Obituary Writer. I just want to kind of preface this by saying when I was growing up in a small town in Maine, the first thing I did when I got up in the morning, and this was in middle school, was read the obituaries. I always found that the most interesting part of the paper. Now that's, you know, you're talking about a kid, 12, 13, 14 years old. So, you know, when I, I saw your book and, and I saw the, you had written an article, I guess, in the New York Times last week, I thought, boy, I have to have Heather on the show. Let's talk about that. And you know, finding the good obituaries sometimes are things that people want to shy away from. We don't want to think about our own obituary, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing, Right. No, I mean, I, I think, especially in these days, I mean, I mean, compared to front page news, um, uh, yeah. most obituaries are downright inspirational. I mean, exactly. it's really, um, it, it's really uplifting to read about, um, uh, you know, the way people lived and the things that they overcame or, uh, their successes or their failures in some cases and how they persevered. I don't know. I, I can learn something from, from reading, uh, any obituary. You don't have to know the person. Well, you live in a town, what, 2,000 people in Alaska? Yeah, very small place. So everybody, very small. Okay, so everybody must know each other, I would assume, pretty much. Um, so yes. when, yeah. I write obituaries. I've written, I've written now probably um, in the, over the last 20 years since I started doing them for the paper here. I've written, oh, we figure around 500, and they've uh, all been for people I know, and some people um, I've been very close to. So... Um, even children of friends of mine or parents of friends of mine. It's, um, uh, it's really an interesting, uh, I don't know what it is. It's a, not really a job, really. It's a, it's a calling <laughs> in some ways, I guess. So the calling, how did you get that calling? I mean, did, did you, you know, here you're a writer, obviously. You went to college. Did you decide or suddenly, well, I'm going to be in a 
write obituaries? Or? No, no. I, <laughs> I, um, what happened was um, uh, after uh, our newspaper is a weekly paper, first of all. It's very small. The Chilkat Valley News uh, circulation about 1,000. And, um, uh, and it's a good paper, though been going for 50 years, and it, several times it's been um, won the Alaska Press Club Awards for the best small newspaper in Alaska. But um, at any rate, there's a column in it that's very popular called Duly Noted, where uh, names are in boldface, you know, that's like somebody, a family went to Disneyland, or the grandmother came to visit, or a wedding, or a baby is born, or, you know, who won the bridge club, uh, that kind of thing. And... Um, uh, years ago, in the in the nineteen early nineties, I guess um, the woman who was writing it was a retired English teacher. And when her husband died, I made the mistake of saying, "Oh, Doris, is there anything I can do for you?" And she said, "Sure, you can write duly noted." So I ended up um, writing this duly noted <laughs> column. And then what happened was a friend of um, uh, a friend of mine, her mother was dying, and typically the obituaries were written by reporters at the paper. And she got in a little tiff with a new reporter who was kind of an investigative type over, I don't even know what it was, something to do with parking on Main Street. or Anyway, she got mad at him, and so then she said, well, I want Heather to write my obituary because she writes, you know, duly noted. If she can write about live people, she can write about dead people. And then she actually said she'd help me. She was dying of um, uh, emphysema. And she was an elderly woman, and so she, she kind of wrote out how she wanted hers to be, and... <laughs> sat down with me, and there was, um, and I ended up writing her obituary. And then after that, um, I've pretty much done all of them. Um, uh, sometimes if there's more than two in a week, uh, another reporter will do it, or if I'm out of town, or occasionally the family will go ahead and do their own and pay to put it in the paper. But the, um, our, my editor, Tom Morford, who now owns the paper and I've worked with for also about 30 years, he, um, he really discourages that. And he'd rather pay me $75 to write a, a sort of a news New York Times style obituary than have the family put one in. And he'll charge the family five or $600. And so they don't do that. <laughs> so, well, and you are a New York Times bestselling author. Yeah. So here you've got this New York Times bestselling author writing your obituaries. I say that pretty good in a, in a small town. It's better than pretty good. I, I guess, but, but you'd be surprised yeah. sometimes. It's, 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 it's an interesting thing. And, you know, um, people don't really um, think of it that way and often will, uh, you know, won't want to rewrite it or tell me how I can write it better. And, and I, I, part of, a big part of what I do, and I think you'd appreciate this as a social worker, is, um, you know, I'm a grief counselor. And so it's not really about the writing um, in an obituary. It's about um, how, it's about all the interactions that I have while I'm putting it together with um family and friends and just community members. I mean, here everybody is touched by it, and then every time there is a death, it brings up all the grief from all the previous ones, you know? And so um, that's, that's the most important part of it. The writing is really not as important. So it's the connections that you have with the person themselves, with the family members, with everybody who's connected with this person. Because you said, well, the first one you're talking about, the uh, who was dying of the first person, or your first obituary. Yeah, Nedra. Uh, Her name was Nedra. Nedra, and she was dying of emphysema. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, but you wrote the obituary with her. Do you do that often, like sitting down with the person and writing the obituary with, with, the, per, with the person and or the family? 
or is that unique? Um, no, Nedra's was very unique, and that was yeah. the first one, and I kind of eased into it with her family and Nedra helping. And, um, and she didn't really, I mean, we didn't sit down too much. She was pretty sick. She was handing me pieces of paper or telling her daughter what, you know, where to get the information on the, you know, her mother's middle name or, you know, where she was born, where she went to high school, um, those kind of things. For someone who's in, you know, their 80s, that's, that can be, they want to make sure that information is out there. And she was finding those things for her kids to, to give to me. But um, typically, um, I, I, I don't. Once I did one for a, a friend of mine who was dying of breast cancer ahead of time, and I, I wrote about that in Find the Good. Um, and that was really, really hard. Um, I, uh, with her, I wrote it with her. But I... Um, I usually don't do that. But what I do do is when I write them, I'm in close contact with the family. I meet with family members personally. I meet with friends. I take notes. Um, and I, I do, and I don't know if you know, big-time obituary writers do this, but I do share with them. I send them the copy I'm going to send to the paper for, um, to make sure it's correct, mainly. I tell them to please make sure I haven't made any mistakes, I haven't spelled someone's name wrong or, or uh, you know, a place where they had lived or the name of their business or whatever, um, but not so much for the content. Uh, sometimes they'll come back to me and they'll say, for instance, um, these are little things, but they tell so much about a family, I think. I wrote one, I've been writing two this week and for big people in Haynes, and one of them was um, the, the, the man who died was a, a real popular old logger here. And um, in, in that obituary, it seems silly, but... Um, his second wife, who had been married to now for, I don't know, 56 years, when he married her, she had two little children. And um, so they were her children. And in the obituary, I knew this, so I just said, you know, and he raised her children. And they took that out because he'd adopted the kids, and they had his last name, and they just said together they raised two children. And, you know, that's... I, that's a, that's some that's sort of a finesse, but it made them feel much better, and and that's fine. It's still accurate. I have um, an adopted child, and so I wouldn't want to separate that child from the other children in my obituary. Do, so uh, does like it happen that often that people that maybe people think is just weird? Yeah. But those are those are some of the things that become suddenly very important when someone dies, and you're writing about them in a newspaper. Well, what I thought was interesting, the fact that you actually, and you can do that I, because it is a small town, you really go to and sit down with the family and talk to them. I don't think that's done in, in, in not just in big city newspapers, but even in medium-sized town. Uh, you know, I do, I, I'm from Albany, New York, for instance, and I, I think the, it looks to me like, and I want to ask you about this, that families themselves write the obituaries and you'll have two columns of absolutely everything this person has ever done. Uh, they, they don't really look professionally written, such as, as yours would look like. So uh, that looks like a, it's a very different approach. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, it's kind of like I look at this and they've got every club the person belonged to and every possible award they ever got and every dog they ever had. Um, mm-hmm. To me, it's kind of a little too much information. and I'm not sure that it really gives you a sense of who the person was, is, was. Yeah, it's hard. I, I can't imagine um, uh, sitting down and trying to write an obituary for a, a local paper of someone that you were very close to right during all that time. Um, you know, when someone dies, it's, it's um, it, it, either suddenly or from a long illness, it's, it's still 
so traumatic. And and there's all the family dynamics or the, the, the community dynamics or wherever they're living and, and doing. And and there's this whole list of things people have to figure out. I mean, the, the burial or the cremation or the funeral home or the services or, or the, the house that needs to be cleaned up or whatever. And then they've got, you know, sudden, oh, yeah, we've got to get the obituary in the paper. And so it, it I mean, it, it sets you up for failure, I think. And, um, and then you're sorry later that you didn't quite get it right. And so, I don't know, I, I guess I, I'd do a plug for professional obituary writers. I just think... <laughs> you'd get a little, a better piece. And also you'd get the benefit of, when I go, the biggest thing that happens is, you know, I'm sitting at the kitchen table and one thing I notice over and over again is it's kind of weird, but I walk into a grieving house and the first thing that usually happens is they're trying to make me comfortable. Can I get you a cup of coffee? You know, there's, there's cookies and cakes and things that people have brought by and, and they give me the best chair um, you know, they, they, they want to make sure I'm warm enough, they shoo the dog away, all these things. And I'm sitting there thinking, I should comfort you. And I realize that in comforting me and doing these sort of normal things, that, that helps them. And so I have to, sometimes I stay a long time. People want to get out photo albums. They, they want to play um, their favorite music. They want to you know, show me newspaper clippings, wedding pictures, whatever. Much of that won't be in the obituary, as you say, but it, it makes them remember and feel better and, and get to some sense of back to, to what was important in their life and what, what is and what remains. Yeah, that, that's a very social work thing to do. Uh, in social work, they always say uh, you can get more information about a family if you just have lunch with them one day or coffee yeah. or tea or <laughs> rather than seeing them, you know, five times in your office uh, or five weeks in your office, which is which is really true. You know, I think one of the things that you mentioned in, in your book was uh, well, about uh, tragedy uh, in terms of like when a, a child dies. And that's probably, mm-hmm. I would assume, the most tragic situation. Can you talk about having or writing an obituary for, for, a, for a child? It's hard. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's the worst thing you can do. And I, um, there was a, a, one case that I, there's, well, there's a couple. Um, there was one that I, I wrote about that was so tough um, for a, a woman who had a son that had um, really severe cerebral palsy. And um, Jeremy was very popular in our community. And um, he had a, uh, kind of a motorized wheelchair and a voice box that could help him and was, you know, completely integrated into the school and came to all the community events. And um, and his mother just adored him and um, spent, you know, her whole, whole life um, making him uh, comfortable and accommodating and, you know, sure that he had as normal a life as he could have given his um, his, his disabilities. And... Um, when he died, she was just devastated, and um, I had to write that obituary, slipping kind of notes under the door of her house, a vestibule. She didn't want to talk, and um, I just remember, I just remember that one um, made me, um, I don't know, just realize how connected I was here, and how not just how I was connected to her, but how we all are as um, human beings in in that in that interaction in our, in our most, 
difficult times that when someone else is there, just me sending the notes helped her. And she helped me to realize that it wasn't so important what I was writing. It was important what I was doing. Do, it. do you ever get depressed doing this? I mean, yeah. I mean, because no, I you do. are writing I, about I, people. Yeah. I, yeah. No, you bet. And I, I'll sometimes, you know, I'll just sob when I leave someone's house. And um, that's, I, I can't, you know, when I go in, I have to be, I find it, it's a comfort if I'm just plain about it. I don't make a big big deal. I'm like, okay, you know, let's start. And I always try to start when I'm talking with people with the farthest away from the death because they always want to talk right about the death. It's like, when were they born? What were their parents? You know, stuff that people have to think about that kind of removes the emotion from it. And then by the time we've chatted for a while, then we get at the end, we get to the, the more emotional stuff, but they're, they're better prepared to start talking about that. Um, but I do, and I've quit sometimes. Um, and usually the times that I've said I'm not going to do it anymore have usually been after a young person dies. A friend of mine's son died in a, a fishing boat um, sinking. Um, he was uh, with his brothers, and the, and the boat sank, and he, they tied a line to him and, um, uh, to go dive in the water to get a life raft that had blown off the, the wheelhouse of the boat. And, um, and after he dove in, the boat started sinking, and his brothers were desperately looking for a knife to cut him loose, and it didn't happen. It was just a terrible, terrible tragedy. And the Coast Guard rescued the other three and um, won a um, flying bronze cross or the highest award you could get for a rescue for rescuing the other ones, but they lost their younger brother. And um, so, how do you that, find so how do you find the good? How do you find the good in that story uh, well, or the life you, of that I, person? Yeah. I can tell you this story, and it's amazing. I I didn't find the good; their mother did, and their mother, my friend Becky, was so. Um, broken up because here she, you know, wanted to celebrate that two of her sons and their friend lived, and one of her son died. I mean, what a what a position to be in, right? And so she Sophie's is a quilter. Kind of thing, yeah. So Becky's a quilter, and she she went to her shop or studio where she quilts, and she really didn't come out for a while, like a couple of months. She didn't see much of Becky, and when she got done, she had done a, a quilt, a wall hanging sort of in the, where she had the ocean in like a crazy quilt style, and she had their, their boat, you know, your classic high-bowed white um, fishing boat that was named after she and her husband, the Becca Dawn, and um, she showed the boat sinking, going under, right? And she showed a helicopter on the one side pulling up three, um, three people, three boys in survival suits, and on the other side of the photograph she showed an angel holding another one in a survival suit. And then um, she uh, had a heart tethered to the boat, and she gave the quilt to the Coast Guard station in Sitka and thanked them. That's quite a story. I mean, that's, well, she's an artist. And yeah, but I mean, yeah. she, you know, she found good. I wouldn't have been able to, but she did. And, um, you know, and that, that was just such a powerful um, and visual uh, thing to do. Plus, it was it was work for her that helped her. What about in in other stories? Are there situations where either you or the family really has difficulty finding the good in in a in a in a death or um, 
Has there ever been that kind of a situation for you emotionally? Like it's really difficult for you to do that, uh, given the person, whatever they've done or their history or or whatever it is? Yeah, sure. I mean, when somebody, um, I mean, what do you do when somebody, um, uh, you know, kills themselves? Um, And and that that comes up, and that's such a that's such a tough thing. And it's not, I guess, I hate. I know I said like find the good, and I don't. I don't mean that in a trite way, but but there are ways. You remember the, the good about that person. You remember the people they loved and the and the and the things that they did. And even you know sometimes it involves um, somebody that's bipolar, and so they they have these huge impacts on a community when somebody is 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 um, uh, so up and so talented and so uh, dramatic you know, one minute and then in deep depression the next. And when we all live together, we know it almost like a family. And so in that case, you know, you address, even in the obituary a little bit, you address the, the, the mental illness issues. Um, you know, usually you have a family member or a social worker or somebody say something about how, how difficult this is. And, but then you also focus on, on the higher points of that person's life and the, and the things that, um, you know, made everyone love them. I think, Heather, you mentioned in the book, or maybe I had gone online and listened to you reading uh, an introduction to your book, and and you do, you talk about, it, it's not the last day, you don't write about necessarily the last day of people's lives, but everything that led up to it, and there's always, uh, obviously, some good. I think you mentioned one thing that uh, probably is something that's pretty common today, you know, people die, and they've very often been in hospice for many months, or even uh, hospice for years or nursing homes and we tend to think of especially as people get older and that's what you tend to remember about them but they lived a whole life before that that was mm-hmm. much yeah and that that's what you focus on in terms of finding the good right you, you, you look at their you know they were I mean like they may, may have died you know kind of mumbling and confused like you say in a, in a home but you know back when they were 40 they were a real Bon vivant, you know, they might have uh, dressed in a, a, a dressing gown with a cravat and, and, and played charades and been involved in the local community players and, um, you know, just a really sort of a dashing kind of an Errol Flynn character that if you only focused on the end of their life, you, you might not know. And, um, or, I mean, now I just, you know, the, just today I've written one about a, a, a fellow who was one of our last World War II veterans. I mean, a, a lovely, likable old logger who turns out that he was, you know, in the invasion of Japan when he was 17. I mean, that's a, you would, who would, you just wouldn't associate him with being a paratrooper, I guess. And, <laughs> and so it's important to bring some of those things back to, that, to remember the, the, the big things in their life that they might not talk about ever or um, certainly call attention to that when you start digging a little deeper, you find, wow, this is, they really did some, you know, they, they had a, a remarkable life. Heather, now what about you? Because I know for myself, I do think about what, what do I want in my obituary? And I've even said to my boys, I have three grown boys, like maybe I should write my obituary because I want you to get certain things in there. <laughs> and uh, I'm sort of half joking, but now you write obit. This is what you do. So mm-hmm. you must think about your own obituary. Who's going to write it? Are you? Have you written it? Or is that? 
You know, I assume that. No, yeah. I, I haven't <laughs> written it, and I, and I, and I, I, my my thinking has changed somewhat on this. If you'd asked me this even two days ago, I would have said, I don't, I don't think obituaries are, I don't think they're all that important. I guess I think it's how you live that's important, and and how, you know, whatever is caught up in the end, you know, you hope that that you leave things behind with. Um, you know, your family or friends or organizations that were important to you, that there's some sort of a lasting impact that you had, um, and a good one. I, I think that's important, but I was walking with my friend um, Beth, who's a, a hospice administrator, and we were talking about um, a, a, a friend who's, who's dying of uh, brain cancer and how she's writing a lot on a, on a blog about it, you know, with the Caring Bridge. And um, I said, boy, you know, if it was me, I don't think I would be doing that at the very end of my life. I think I would, I would sort of shut down all the, all the writing and focus on, on my family. And she said, well, that's easy for you to say because you've written three books and you have all these columns and you have this. Not everybody has something written down that people can go back to. And so I guess um, I would say, you know, go ahead and write some stuff down. If that's, you know, write down the things that were important to you that and put them in a drawer somewhere or give them to your family member. You know, certainly the names and the dates and all that, but even more important, I think, what, what you loved, what you were afraid of, what your challenges were, what your hopes are, something that you could leave with the people that are important to you. Well, I think that's great advice. Nice. <laughs> uh, but I want to, we, only, we, have about, we have a couple minutes left, so... You are a writer. You have a blog as well. Besides your book, you do a lot of writing, obviously. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, tell us about the blog, your website, how we can just well, your book. Find well, it's find easy. Good, I mean, you just go to my name. My blog is my blog is kind of local. It's 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 interesting. It's it's uh, it's also for people in Haines. Check it out to find out what's sort of going on in town, and um, and it's about my family. And there's photographs of where I live in Haines, Alaska. It's not. Um, it's just something I do to kind of communicate. And I and I have a website where people can read about more than they want to know about me, probably. And um, three books. My first book was um, If You Lived Here, I'd Know Your Name. The news from small town Alaska, and the second one is "Take Good Care of the Garden and the Dogs," and those are my mother's last words. And um, and then the third one is "Find the Good." So, um, and I'm easy to find, and I enjoy, um, you know, corresponding with people. And you just type in if you just Google Heather Lindy, you can find all that stuff. So, in other words, you say you will correspond with people if they write into you on your website. Then you, res- you yeah, write- I don't, yeah, I you- don't actually have. Um, you know, the feedback on the blog, because I, I, that would just drive me wiggy, I think. But there's a contact, and people email me, and I answer them back. So I figure if somebody wants to get in touch with me, they can take that one extra step and not fire off some angry thing in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah, like some people we know, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we didn't even get into that, but, um, you know, your book... You've written three books. Is there some another book in the making, or something that we should be looking forward to? Um, I'm sure there is. I actually, this is my next sort of adventure, and of course, everything is rooted in my experience in writing obituaries. But I was just um, this election cycle has really kind of motivated me to be a little more involved, and I actually um, ran and won a seat on the local borough assembly. Congratulations! So, so now. <laughs> I, I might, you know, because I'm a writer and I write about things, I, I imagine 
that experience here is going to be translated into something about small-town democracy at work. And it's, it's been challenging so far, but um, it's, uh, it's both myself and my editor at the Chilkat Valley News, Tom Morfritt, also won a seat. So we're the two new assembly members, and we're both kind of from the newspaper, which is sort of the opposite, I guess, of what's happened in the country. Um, and, yeah, so you're uh, the press running the town. Yeah. So and we and we both won. So it's um, that's 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 been really um, uh, a good thing right now to be involved in in local government and being able to do something. And it's also um, interesting in how it all works and the compromises one has to make, even in a small town. But you must be obviously you're some you're you're a leader in the town even before this even before you got elected. So when, when Heather walks downtown, Heather Lendy, everybody knows you, and they must and obviously knew you before. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, and I think they I think they hope that I'm I think you know that that can be a mixed blessing in a small town, but I I think also um, uh, you know I think there's some respect there. I tend to be. Um, you know, as a writer, I think I'm, I'm I'm always a little more liberal. I'm a little more creative. I'm a little more intuitive than than sometimes um, uh, is um, appreciated. Um, you know, and I speak up for sort of social justice and the environment and things like that that are easy to say in a room full of writers, but not so easy to say in a room full of say miners or commercial <laughs> fishermen, <laughs> where who I work with. So. It's, um, yeah. I just, my, my motto um, for, for working with this is sort of the same one that I, I do kind of, I say to myself when I go in to write an obituary, and it's be kind, be brave, and be thankful. So I always, I, I just think about that, and it's helped me a lot in, at the assembly so far and not losing my temper. Be kind, and then also be brave, and just be thankful, you know, for the, the life I'm leading in the community I live in. That's great advice. Uh, We've been talking to Heather Lendy, and her book is Find the Good, Unexpected Life Lessons from a Small-Town Obituary Writer. You can buy it on Amazon, bookstores everywhere, and go to her website, heatherlendy.com. Is that the website? And you can. Yep. Okay, great. Really nice talking to you today. Thanks so much for being on the show. It was great to talk to you, Catherine. I enjoyed it very much, and I'd, I'd be happy to talk to you again anytime. Great. Great. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. And uh, I am Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and we'll be back in a minute. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is award-winning psychotherapist Jude Bijou. Her new her book is Attitude Reconstruction, a Blueprint for Building a Better Life. So psychotherapist Jude Bijou says we can't control which fearful, fretful, and anxious thoughts pop into our brain, but we can control how we respond to those thoughts. She is a respected psychotherapist, professional educator, and consultant, and her theory of attitude reconstruction evolved over the course of more than 30 years as a licensed marriage and family therapist. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jude. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Yeah, nice to be with you again, because as we talked about before we got on the air, was that you had uh, been on the show a couple of years ago, so we're ready to talk again. Uh, this is a really a good time to do this attitude reconstruction. I think a lot of us uh, need a little bit of that uh, uh, trying to control our, what the, uh, we, well, you say we can't control the thoughts that pop into our brain, but we can respond to the, to the responses to those thoughts, negative thoughts. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that because I think the election has brought up uh, a, a lot of these issues, we should say, that you, that you uh, deal with or talk about in your book. Absolutely. That, well, and when yeah. you have differences, I, <laughs> yes. what, what, what do we do? How can we keep the connection between people and voice our differing opinions? Exactly. We have half the country feeling one way and half the country feeling another way. And I mean, the negativity and, and the, you know, divisiveness and all of those things are really out there. And, uh, and it's really a serious. So I think it's really uh, appropriate. And, and uh, your book really, I think, uh, kind of feeds into this in terms of how we can deal with these emotions. That's right. Because the most important thing is that we really realize that nobody is right and nobody is wrong. We have differing opinions. And we have to honor each other that, that to say, all right, the last elections were won by my guy and now this election's run by your guy. Let's work together rather than you know, that was unfair, and how could you vote for him, and, you know, uh, how could a woman be uh, the president, and all those kind of things. Those, that's not constructive. What we have to do is really go into communication. If we do want to talk politics, we have to, I say, follow four simple rules. And the first rule is we have to talk about ourselves. Because if we go, you, you're an idiot, you voted for her, and, you know, how could you do that? 
there's all of a sudden we're on the defense. We're not ready to have an open conversation. So we can say, whoa, I'm really anxious. I don't know what's coming and I um, can't sleep at night. That's great. Then the person can be receptive to what's true for you. But there's that tendency, especially if we have some anger roaming around in our body, to make them the problem. And that just causes separation and isolation, anxiety, and so on. All right, so you, we have to know where we're coming from. You don't start out by accusing somebody like, why, could you, why would you vote for Trump or why would you vote for Hillary? Or, uh, that, that's not a good way to start out. But what about just in terms of ourselves? Let's talk about in terms of your book. Because you say that, I mean, there is a blueprint for dealing with these negative emotions, the fear, the anxiety, all of those things. Um, and, and you do say one of the things are you have like six different um, parts of this blueprint, identify and navigate the six primary emotions. So first we have to figure out what those emotions are, right? Absolutely. And that's what I realized when I was uh, growing up, like I wasn't happy. And I wanted a manual that would tell me, okay, here's how you can produce the emotions of joy, love, and peace. Here's how you can be happy. But I couldn't find it. And so I started off with a scientific background and then sort of gave that up to whatever extent you can and uh, went to the East and to meditation and philosophy. And then I became a psychotherapist. And I had to put all of those elements together, the science the meditation, and my experience of talking with people and dealing with my own experience. And I really uncovered that emotions were at the root of all of our um, unhappiness. And those that there were just six emotions. It's like there's so many different theories. Oh, we have eight emotions and six emotions and ten emotions and so on. I realized that emotions are just pure energy, pure sensations in the body. E-motion, energy in motion. And there were just, as I said, six of them and three pairs. But there's sadness, anger, and fear. And then there's the opposites, joy, love, and peace. And each of those six feel really different. When we feel sadness in our body, we feel heavy and down. Because that energy, that pure emotional energy is just a physical sensation. There's no words there. Where our mind gives it words, but there's just that sensation. And we feel blue. We feel heavy. We, 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 maybe we feel um, um, unmotivated. That's real different from when we feel anger in our body. When we feel anger, we want to strike out. We want to, you know, d- destroy something of, uh, of value. We, you know, it's them, you know, that's the you, 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 you're not okay, you, you, you. But that's the words we give it. But inside, it's our body is hot. We're, we're clenched. We're wanting to strike out. And that's real different from when we're feeling fear. When we're feeling fear, we're cold. We're shivery. We're, we're anxious. We, we, you know, our, our chest constricts and we can't breathe. All of those three emotions, sadness, heavy, anger, strike out, and fear, real different. And as well, the opposite emotions are, <clears throat> are real different. We go from sadness down to joy up. <clears throat> we go from anger, <clears throat> excuse me, 
Anger up to love? To love. And love is, instead of pushing out and wanting to hurt, we bring in, we feel warm, we feel our, our sameness. And for the last, fear, we're agitated and, and jittery. And peace, we're calm and relaxed. Okay, those are opposite. Those are the six uh, emotions, obviously. And But what do we do? How do we get to that point? I mean, how do you go from sadness to joy, from anger to love and from fear to peace? Without, Do we have to be in therapy? Do we have to meditate? Yeah. Can we do it on our own? What? No, absolutely not. <clears throat> what we do need, there are five ways we can make that shift. We can deal with the energy just per se, and that is, well, I, I go back to looking at how animals and young children, what does a young child do when it's angry? It has a temper tantrum, falls down on the floor, kicks and screams and yells, and if he's, you know, given space, he'll be, be done with that in five minutes, and then he pops back into being his full self. But what we got are all these messages that say, don't, don't show your, girls aren't pretty when they're angry, and don't wear your heart on the sleeves, and, you know, Children should be seen and not heard. But if we feel angry and feel that hot energy rather than striking out, we need to go, oh, I'm feeling that energy. I need to take myself someplace safe and maybe stomp around to move that energy or push against a a wall or um, uh, yell into a pillow. Or I, I have clients... You have a, 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 a flexible plastic hose that I just get at the plumbing store and beat the heck out of old phone books. It feels so good to just move that energy. And that's so it's what that's we need. And you're saying, it, uh, Jude, you're saying it's that simple. I mean, it is fairly simple because if you can be in your own house or your own apartment or wherever you live and you feel that rage, I would say, which is even maybe more angrier than angry, uh, and you just have to like just take that energy you're saying, like hit a pillow, hit a phone book. To hopefully, don't put your fist through the wall. But uh, that, safe, safe. Yeah, safe things to do. But you just dissipate the energy, and then what? It slowly gets back into something or approaching love or approaching. Well, yes, because yep. I say you can produce a divine shift by just doing that. Just really, just because while you're pounding or pushing, or stomping, you don't go, oh, I hate you, oh, you're, you're so awful. You go, I'm just angry. You own the feeling that's in your body. I'm so mad, oh. And, when, and if you do that for just like five minutes, you know, you take yourself someplace safe. You excuse yourself, go into, a gra- into the garage or at work. You can go into the bathroom and you can uh, take the, the door of the stall and shake it on its hinge, just to dissipate that energy. And then you can use your mind, which is the second way that you can make a change. And that is use for anger. One of the best expressions is something uh, that was coined by Albert Ellis, uh, who is a renowned psychologist who's no longer with us. And he said that people and things are the way they are, not the way I want them to be. So profound. People and things are the way they are, not the way I want them to be. 
so that we can then remove that energy and then we can think that thought over and over. Okay, that's the way that person is. That person is talking in a way that I don't like. Okay, but that's the way he is. He's not the way I want him to be. He talks like that. He's going to always talk like that. He talked like that yesterday. He's going to talk like that tomorrow. I've got to accept it. And acceptance doesn't mean lay down and let him do it. But when I go, all right, that's the way he is, then I can use my communication tools. What's true for me? That goes back to that, uh, what we were talking about at, at first. What do I need to say? So I don't want to you him and tell him he's obnoxious. I want to say, hey, I can't hear very well when you're using that tone of voice. So we have to take responsibility for our own emotions. And that applies that you're a marriage and family therapist. So obviously, if you have a couple in therapy, very often they're pointing fingers at each other and angry at that person for being the person that he or she is when that's who they are. You have to own up to your own feelings and then begin to deal with them. That's really critical. Or you gave the example, I guess, also in an office with your boss or who or an, another colleague who yeah. you're really angry at. Uh, so it works there too. And I guess it works in terms of who we've elected president or who we elect as our senators or our, you know, how we feel about, uh, uh, you know, the whole political situation, which we kind of started off this conversation with. So we just have to take responsibility for our own thoughts. That's, um, I think that's really, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And then, and then from that point of taking responsibility, because that's really what it is. For accepting, all right, that's what the country decided, is that that's, you know, given the way that our country, or we have electoral college and so on, that's the way that it is. I've got to accept it. I've got to accept it. Then I can, like, turn to myself. Well, what am I going to do? Well, I'm not going to go out and uh, say mean things. I'm going to go and write a letter to my congressman, or I'm going to get a uh, volunteer at a local Planned Parenthood, or what am I going to do so that I can channel that energy to creating more love, less anger and more love, given that it is what it is. Well, I think in productivity comes, and I'm saying productivity, maybe emotional productivity as well as actually hand hands-on doing something uh, then becomes a reality because it's if you're just caught up in the anger or feeling sad or you mentioned sadness, anger, and fear, uh, let's say in regard to this election, for instance, because of who we elected as president, that's not really going to get you anywhere, which is what you're saying. So you need to accept the feeling. I'm repeating it because I think it's really important what you're saying. And then you can go out and do something, whether you know, something that's productive, that's going to be something that's going to make or help you to feel better and to actually be doing something that's going to change things in in a, in the way that you'd like to see them change. Exactly. And not from that stance of that you really have this hidden anger and so you start to volunteer but you get leaky and you start being critical or you start making snide comments. That's not good. You 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 want to move that energy out of your body so that you can be more present. You can be more loving, and then from there, act. But it really do, do you think all... this works? Do you think this works? Because I think the, uh, particularly after the election, and then it was Thanksgiving, and there were so many 
uh, talk shows, television, radio, about the fact that some families couldn't even get together or couldn't invite certain family members to Thanksgiving dinner. And this would work, this would be the same also around the Christmas season and Hanukkah and all of that uh, because they were on pol- just politically on opposite sides, that it really became a, just these emotions associated with particularly this election, people couldn't even get together as families. Now, you're a therapist. Did you find that in your practice? And then, because that's not a, I mean, that's sort of just not a good thing, obviously, and, and something no. that's... Yeah, but of course, I did find that of people uh, expressed a lot of uh, fear and trepidation about getting together. But I suggest that we talk with our family members and say, hey, we're different politically. Send an email or something. Let's have politics off the table. And that everybody agrees, let's concentrate on what we have that's similar. And let's not dwell on those, those differences because I'm not going to convince you and you're not going to convince me. But we are family. And let's watch what the, the, the kids are at, at soccer practice and let's put together a nice meal. And let's not leak out our differences, because that's not going to bring more love. Uh, that's hard to do. I, I think it's really, it's, I, I think what you're saying is obviously it's a very, it's positive. It's something that we, we need, we should do. But in, in reality, it's very difficult. I think families start out doing that or, you know, have good intentions and then things kind of slip into <laughs> whether, <laughs> or you know, somebody says something and then you get right, right back into it. So it's an issue not only with families, but I think in the workplace as well. So Absolutely. Uh, but again, yeah. the, what you can do is you get everybody to agree beforehand, and then it's each person's responsibility not to fall out of remembering the, uh, the purpose of the gathering. And so that when a person starts to make a comment that you make the timeout sign or you throw a Kleenex on the floor, or you say something like broccoli. You, you, you have a cue, so you help each other remember that the purpose is to be uplifting and to, to uh, go for your similarities. But it, it is uh, hard, but we have that responsibility to keep everybody on track. Hey, no, let's not go there. That's not going to work. And then the, the joker who's, oh, yeah, but I just wanted to make a joke about it. It's like, no, let's talk about what we share in common. Uh, I mean, I know friends who are no longer friends because of this election. It, it became, yeah. They became so, yeah, and uh, so polarized that uh, they actually have ruined friendships because they just haven't been able to. To, to get together. Now, I don't know about couples. Uh, that's another issue. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Families where, <laughs> tell us about that. I mean, do you have couples where one is a Republican, one is a Democrat? They felt very strongly. Did this come into play in, in, in terms of um, uh, couples therapy? Uh, I didn't have that personally, but I know that, that it was really contentious where one's a Republican and one's a Democrat. And they really have to, for the peace of the family, that they had to decide how they're going to deal with that. Because it's not good when, if people are sniping at each other and making comments. It, it just it, it doesn't do us any good. It doesn't change any minds. And so it has to be, well, how are we going to deal with that difference? Because we're not going to get a divorce over it. 
you know, unless people go, well, all right, I'm going to get a divorce. That's a little radical. That's a little radical. We have to accept the differences and play on our similarities. So how do we deal with the children in this situation? I mean, you're a therapist. Like, let's say you have families who are divided, parents who are divided uh, in, in, in terms of politically, uh, how does that affect the children? Because I think it does, and it has an impact on the whole family. Well, I really am a big advocate of talking and listening, and that doesn't mean having a discussion. It means everybody putting duct tape over their mouth, not, not actually, but and one person getting to talk about their views and their opinions and everybody listens to understand. And you can use a little timer and give everybody two minutes to stand to talk. And then when it's over, the next person gets to talk. And the next person, they, they can talk about their fears. I, I was uh, dealing with uh, one gal a couple of days ago who said her daughter came running in the next day when she heard the election. Mommy, are we going to have to move? And, and the, the child was crying. Because you know she had been read, you know hearing all of this uh, this news and a lot of talk about it in the family, and that that needs to be honored. We need to listen and not try to correct them, but listen to understand that children are affected and they need to be understood. And then, after everybody gets to say their piece, then we can work together to help those people, the, the kids who need more information. No, we're not going to move to Canada. We're going to, you know, wait and see, but what we can do is locally we can volunteer. Okay, so the same things you would do for yourself, as we mentioned earlier in the interview, you can help your children. Absolutely, but it's to so do in important the same way. That's appropriate, yeah. To, to listen to them, to not, not just go, oh, it's okay, or, boy, that's, this election's terrible. We can, we, we, kids are human beings. They have, you know, after they're five or six, they, they, they have, uh, you know, their brains are working, and they need to be honored for what they feel, what they hear at school from the other kids. And, you know, that the, there's a, a studies that goes there's a lot more bullying now. Uh, uh, President-elect Trump has given voice to the, that that seems to be all right. And uh, so we need to, to be with our kids to say, hey, it's all right to feel sad. It's all right, but don't go back and do it to them. It's not going to produce a good feeling. You can speak up and say, hey, I got my feelings hurt. Oh, that's great. Or you can walk away. But you don't want to take your own frustrations out on other people and things. It's not going to do anything for our planet or for our peace of mind. Yeah. Well, then what you're saying is it is critical for couples, for families, for children to really listen, and particularly with children, because sometimes we tend just to want to reassure them. And like you say, don't just say, well, things are going to be okay. You really need to hear what they're what their fears, all of those th- fears, anger, and sadness is all about, even in the kids, and then address it. That's really, yeah. Is, yeah. 
and that's important. It always goes back to these emotions because if we don't deal with, if we don't cry when we feel sad and we don't shake and shiver and when we acknowledge that fear, then we're going to develop some bad attitudes instead. Like that's what the, the bully or, or somebody who's critical or mean, that that just means they've got a lot of unexpressed anger. And then we, because in all the schools, we need a place where uh, the child or prisons, hospitals, where people can go and have permission to express their emotions in a constructive way. That's what's really important. When we're, when we're shaking and shivering like a dog at the vet, all up and down the spine and woo, you know, making some, like, like Halloween kind of noises, woo, woo, we just go, I'm just scared. I'm just scared. And then we can reassure ourselves, everything will be okay. All right, I'll just handle the day. I'll handle the day. But if we go back to the emotions and start to name them and own them, again, have those good cries. Cry about the election and, and our disappointment. Or we can be happy about it. Or be joyous about it. (laughs) Or not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We have, you know, we have to say goodbye because our time is up, but it has been a real pleasure talking to you today. And I want to mention your book again, Attitude Reconstruction, a blueprint for building a better life. That's Jude Bijou. You can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere. Um, Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Um, It has just been my pleasure. Have a happy holiday for you and your listeners. Thank you. Uh, We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Uh, Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.